Romans 12, we started uh, last week. And uh, the 12th chapter of Romans kind of begins that part that tends to be more application-oriented, uh, talking about the, uh, you know, the fact that we need to be living sacrifices, the renewing of our mind, and to be conformed to this world, talked about gifts. Romans 12 kind of captures the same thought in both uh, 1 Corinthians 12 and 13. We begin in verse 9 through 21 tonight. Uh, it's a series of admonitions, oftentimes grouped in, cl- grouped in clusters of three, and a lot of work and effort is made to categorize them and, and break them down. I don't usually spend a lot of time doing that, uh, and there's some value in it. I think the overall value is not so much in trying to break. When you get with lists, especially Paul, you do need to understand what all the list implies and it says. But instead of trying to be exhaustive and understanding every aspect of every word, which oftentimes in the Greek can have multiple meanings and can have nuances, it's better to let the comprehensive effort seek in and understand that most lists are never meant to be exhaustive but comprehensive. It is to give us an overwhelming sense of urgency or presence or teaching. This particular uh, passage here from verse 9 through 21 is very similar to some parts of the Sermon on the Mount of Jesus. Uh, it's focusing on love, and it, it kind of breaks down in verses 9 through 13 about love within the community of believers. And then from verse 14 and on, it kind of talks about the love we need to have outside of the community, especially in light of the uh, of the impending sense of persecution, certainly in light of uh, discrimination that Christians may feel, pressure, uh, a lack of love. Uh, and so how to react to that. I think, you know, next week we actually will be in the 13th chapter, which deals a little bit with the government authority and things of that nature. We have lived for so long as Americans uh, in Western civilization in terms of evangelical Christianity without much of a challenge to what it means to be Christian and without much pressure placed upon our values that we are not prepared the way we should be to deal with those who oppose us. Some denominations and groups tend to give in to culture. Some want to fight the culture. And very few follow the admonition and the encouragement and teachings of Jesus and Paul and others that we are to embrace the culture with love, not giving in, nor are we necessarily to strike back at them. But understand that the primary way to change the world we live in is through people coming to Christ. It's it's very simple. Christianity has not spread in an authentic way through war. It has spread always authentically through evangelism, changing the lives of people. And the great movements that we have seen that have impacted our culture, such as the Reformation, were the results of spiritual victories not so much political victories. And we need to keep that in mind. Um, so verse 9 says this, an admonition, let love be without hypocrisy, uh, abhor what is evil, and cling to what is good. Do you ever get to the point where um, the glasses that you use to read all of a sudden are harder to see? And I've, uh, the highest Walmart brand I can buy, not dollar-wise, I buy the cheapest, but it's not focusing from there, and I'm having to... Do what you do. So I'm looking over there and I'm like, I don't know what that says. So there you go. I still don't know what it says. So uh, basically, the, the, the words let, it's not in the original Greek. It's kind of added in. It simply says love 
is without hypocrisy. Now, the word for love is the fundamental word in the New Testament, agape, which is the kind of love that we have God expressing towards us, that we towards, express towards God. It's that giving love, that devotion love, that committing love, and we have both vertically towards God and horizontally towards one another. Here, from a horizontal perspective, I've seen other believers or other people, it is to be sincere and genuine without hypocrisy. And the idea of hypocrisy here is the idea of lacking that which is sincere or genuine or straight. I sometimes joke, uh, uh, and especially when I'm dealing with uh, young ministers and other people, that the secret to uh, being successful in ministry is sincerity. And if you can fake that, you'll always have it made. Uh, that faking of sincerity is hypocrisy. And the thing we need to realize is that when we talk about hypocrisy, it's not that it's just that we pretend to be something that we're not, but that we claim to be something and claim to be a type of person and we never live or express that type of person. In other words, we claim to be a follower of Christ, but we don't live that way. It's not just being hypocritical about one or two things. It's a more along the lines of a disposition or a life that is lived without conformity to what we claim to be true. I say I'm a Christian. I'm claiming to be a follower of Jesus. Therefore, I ought to live that way. The primary way we live then is with love. And if you have a sense of love, and it's not just feeling, but it is a sense of tender mercy, compassion, commitment to other people, wanting the best of other people, of reconciling, seeking peace. When you live that way as a follower of Christ, then you will not live in a path of hypocrisy. It doesn't mean that you won't sin. It doesn't mean that you won't stumble. It doesn't mean that you won't make mistakes. It's not it. But you live within the realm of a sincere and genuine love towards one another. And we've all, I think, probably know people that have a sincere and devout love to other people, to one another, to other believers. We've also come across those who simply don't. And we, we, we know the difference. So he says, if you have love without hypocrisy, and then this is the correlating impact of that, or the effect of that, or the example, you abhor what is evil, and you cling to what is good. So in that love, there is a sense of being in opposition to being opposed to evil. The word evil is mentioned a couple times. There's two different words for evil. This is pornaya. We get the word pornography. It means a general sense of that which is wicked. You have a, a distaste for the wicked things of life. You cling or you hold on to that which is good. There's several different words for good used in these verses. This one is that which is morally Good. So it, it really deals within the idea of morals. From a moral perspective, we do not want to see that which is morally wicked take place. And we do want to cling to that which is morally acceptable. And so love encompasses those aspects within a group of believers of Christ. And that exemplifies us and who we are. So that, as he goes on and says... With that in mind, there should be devotion to one another, be devoted to one another. It says, in brotherly love, giving preference to one another in honor. Now, the word be devoted, there again, the word be is probably italicized because it's not in the Greek. Uh, these are not imperatives. 
these are mostly present tense verbs that have the impact of a command. But the word devoted is very similar to the word brotherly love. It is the idea of love. So in essence, there is a love to one another in brotherly love or friendship. The word brotherly love is the Greek word of Philadelphia. The word phileo was in there. Earlier we have the basic word for love, agape. Here we have the second word for love, phileo, which is a tenderness, an affection, the friendship. Hence the brotherly love. The word brother is in there. So there, there ought to be then not only a general sense in which we love as Christians, as followers of Christ, there should then be a sense of tenderness and devotion towards one another. You should care about your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, especially within the church uh, that you attend. I grew up uh, at the Park Hills Baptist Church, and when I was in high school, we went through a church split. It was the nastiest split I think you can imagine. The only one that I ever know the top that was probably the one at Bridgeport before I got there. And two years later, there were still people who wouldn't speak to each other, who split and all that stuff. And yeah, it's no surprise that that church that I, when I that, that those churches struggle. It really is. If you can't have brotherly love and affection towards people you worship God with, there's no way you can have that towards lost people. And by the way, lost people never want to go to that church. You know, people, I hear people say, we just want to be a friendly church. Friendliness is overrated. By that, I simply mean you can pretend to be friendly. You can be hypocritical in your friendliness. But you can't pretend to love people. You just can't. And so even if there's someone you disagree with, or someone you may not even necessarily like, there still needs to be that brotherly affection towards one another. Um... One of my favorite things to do, I did it all the time in Bridgeport, is there were some people, some who stayed at my church before they left, some who left pretty quick, but they, they couldn't stand me. And I, I understand that. I don't blame them for that. One of my favorite things to do was to see them in public and go up and shake their hand and put my arm around them and, and force them to either pretend that they like me and love me in Christ or just turn away and, and, and do it. And I'm assuming this is a side. It's one of my favorite things to do to people because I'm just honoring enough to do it. I do it not because I love them, but because I just want to embarrass them. But here's the thing. Even if you don't agree with someone as followers of Christ, in, in Paul's day, because Christianity was so much in the minority and paganism so ruled today, that brothers and sisters in Christ could not afford to be at odds with one another. One of the shame... Shaming things of the world that we live in is that followers of Christ can dislike and despise one another and not speak to one another. There is just something fundamentally broken about that type of Christianity. He says, give preference to one another as the same idea. He says, it's not lagging behind in indiligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. So verse 11 talks about enthusiasm, a zeal. Don't lag behind in your zeal. The word diligent means zeal, your fervency. There is a passion of the Spirit when you serve the Lord. So it's the idea of this. People who are followers of Christ together in a, a community of believers, they love one another. In doing so, in their, in their love for one another, in their harmony, there is a zeal, a desire, a 
passion to serve the Lord. And the word serve is the word for slave. To enslave yourself to the Lord who is master. And so when churches are at odds with one another, or a church that has people with odds with each other, there is a lack of enthusiasm and passion to serve the Lord. But when you see a church that is with great zeal, In fervency, serving the Lord, you can rest assured that there is a desire within that church for unity to get along with one another, to be of one spirit. And that's that's how a church should function. That's That's how a church should be. And if it's not, then fundamentally, there, 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 there's something wrong. Now, we're in a good place at our church right now. We see a lot of zeal to serve the Lord. We see a lot of energy. And I think that's because right now there's a lot of unity in moving forward and trying to get people to come into a saving relationship with Christ. Now, when a church is battling within itself, it just ain't doing that. It just isn't. And there is, they lack compassion for the Lord. And I've seen it time and time again. It says, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer. So now look what it says. So there was a great hope within that church. It has a sense of rejoicing, joy in the hope they have in Christ. Why are we at odds with one another when we're all going to be spending eternity with one another in heaven? I mean, when you get to heaven, you think you're going to be at odds with that person then. Maybe you're counting on them not being there. They're probably counting on the same with you. If you're both right, then you've got a real problem. And so there's this, there's this rejoicing in the hope we have in Christ. And so in the midst of tribulation, you have to persevere. And here's the thing. And this is what they faced. They faced tribulation from without. They couldn't afford to have problems from within. And one of the things that happens in our country is we don't experience as Christians and as churches much tribulation. We have it pretty easy. I'm not complaining. I'm just telling you. And maybe the reasons churches struggle so much with unity within, within their, their, their uh, uh, company of believers is because they don't feel the pressure from the outside. More and more in our American culture, we are feeling the pressure of tribulation, of testing. Maybe that's a good thing. Maybe that'll be the thing that will purify the believers in Christ. To get them on the same page with one another. Not to protect themselves from tribulation. But to realize that in unity they must serve the Lord in brotherly love. So it says then, you will persevere. The word persevere means to endure. Hupomene means an active endurance. Overcoming. Like an athlete who is hurting, getting cramps to keep running. Uh, they keep they keep they keep on. I don't exercise much anymore. It's obvious. I don't like it. But back in my younger days, when you know I had to get in shape and I had to go through practices and I had to go through all the things, you always had to persevere. You know, through all of it. And when it's August in South Texas and it's a hundred degrees. And they don't give you much water back then because they didn't understand the importance of water, you know. And you're dying of thirst. You have to, and you're hurting, and you're bleeding, and you have to persevere. You are devoted then to prayer. Now, this is, how does prayer go with that? Because here's the thing. 
Hope in the midst of perseverance forces one to prayer. And the prayer that there is, is the prayer not to make God aware of whatever he's, what he already is aware of. It is not to convince God that you shouldn't struggle with what you're struggling with. It is the prayer that we ask God to give us all that we need to get through the tribulation that we're facing. And it is the prayer for one another to lift each other up in prayer. I am not able to pray for all of you. I guess I shouldn't say I'm not able. I don't pray for all of you individually. I pray for you in the whole. But there are groups of people I pray for all the time. My staff is one of those and, and other leaders. And, and, and I pray when someone's hurt or sick or lost a loved one. Uh, I pray for you when someone says pray for me. I pray for you. Uh, and I'm doing so, I do that so that they will have strength and encouragement to face whatever it is they must face with the help of the Lord, knowing, and this is an important part of prayer, that there are people who are supporting you. Because you're fixing to see that some more in just a minute, that there are people who are with you when you struggle. It's great encouragement. I know in the most difficult times of my life that other people and the people in my church couldn't make things go away or fix it. But knowing that they were praying and supporting and encouraging was a great source of encouragement for me. And gave me strength to fight the battle. It says contributing to the needs of the saints and practicing hospitality. So back then, especially when there was so much poverty and people, uh, there was no relief from other sources within the church. Oftentimes, people's family would disown them. It was important that the church would help one another. It's still true today when people are struggling. We need to help them. We need to do what we can. We don't need to call up the church and say, hey, can we give, write a check and cut a check for benevolence? We as believers need to help them as best we can. And you know, come together, love them, support them. So you have this sense of unity within the church. But then Paul sees the necessity in light of what he has taught to help them deal with those who persecute them. So he said, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. The word bless, we get the word eulogy from. It is to speak well. It is to seek God's favor upon those who, in the word persecute, is to press upon them. And so they were feeling persecution. So much of the New Testament is written, if not in light of the reality of persecution, it was within light of the coming prospects of persecution. And so if, this, if Romans went to a church at Rome, uh, by the time Paul wrote it, there had already been a period of time where Christians and even Jews were kicked out of Rome. They came back. There was some pressure. Uh, Paul would die in Rome under the persecution of Nero. Uh, so persecution would become real. Even if it wasn't felt to the full extent, it would become real. Paul said, pray for those, bless those, he said, and ask God's favor for those who persecute you. If someone is in power over you and persecuting you, your best hope for escape is not that you resist them because you really can't, but that you love them, forgive them, and pray that God will change your heart. The secret, like many of you, I see some of the stuff going on, I'm like, God, why don't you drop these people dead? Maybe they'll learn. They won't learn. Well, they're dead. They're not going to learn for that. 
The rest might learn. I don't doubt that either. But my real prayer needs to be that, God, you would save their soul and they would change. I'm going to say this. I, I believe this with all my heart. If we want to see your culture change, I know we vote and we do all that stuff, and I got it. I do all that. And, and you know, and, and, and I, I understand all that. But ultimately, the only way things change is when people come to Christ. In the Christian world, that is it. Now, things can change because of war all throughout human history, but it doesn't change for the better. Oftentimes in history, you just change one despot for another, one cruel king for another cruel king. The poor people and those suffering are still suffering just as much. But only when Christ changes a life. So we pray for their blessing. Don't curse them. When people rejoice, you rejoice with them. When they weep, you weep, you weep. And that means, so even when things happen to people who are outside of Christ, and, and they rejoice, as long as it doesn't dishonor God, you can rejoice with them. With your pagan neighbor, your lost neighbor, gets a new job and celebrates, you celebrate with them. When a child is born, you celebrate them. And when they weep with the loss of a loved one or the broken marriage, you weep with them. Let's hear me out carefully. Identify with lost people as people, not as being lost. Identify with those who don't know Christ as people created in the image of God. Don't identify with their not knowing Christ. You don't have to accept what they do or even who they are to some degree. But you need to accept that God loves them and Christ died for them. And the only way they're ever going to have a changed life is if Christ saves them. And we need to help them in that process. So we rejoice and we weep. Even with the lost, as long as it doesn't dishonor God. He says... For all of you, in dealing with lost people, verse verse 16 is a light of dealing with those who persecute. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty or arrogant, but, but associate with the lowly. And do not be wise in your own estimation. So all of, all of them says, listen, it's kind of like what James says. Don't, don't just welcome the rich when they come to church. Welcome all people when they come to church. Your mind needs to be of the same. You all need to be all need the same mind. Not not haughty, not arrogant towards other people. Not where the, the difficulty oftentimes is that some Christians think of themselves as being spiritually superior. But even the people we might consider lowly by all standards, we need to be inclusive of them. In other words, we need we need to include all people. In the realm of love. Now, if they're living a lifestyle that's outside of Christ or they're not followers of Jesus, we've got to help them with that. I I got all that. But at the end of the day, they need to know I care about them and I love them even if they don't follow Jesus. I'll disagree with them. They need to know I love them. When he says don't be wise in your own estimation, don't think you have a better way. So... Uh, in the world we live in, I think there's a, 
I think for a large part of Christianity, in part when having grown up in Texas and been surrounded by the Bible Belt mentality, and when in a time when everybody I knew went to a church, or if they were Jewish, they went to synagogue. But 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 growing up in a culture where just about everybody went to church, and, and there were so many people were connected. When people did things wrong, it was a tendency to kind of just slap them upside the head. You know, we preach, you know, turn to burn, get your life together, you know, all, all that. God's going to do this, that, and the other. We did a lot of that. And a lot of that was done because we were preaching to people who theoretically should know better. And so I think there was a tendency to lay it on them. I've had the experience in ministry now of, 30, of changing in a culture where most of the people who live in our culture probably don't have a real affiliation with Christ or the church. Not that they're atheists. They're, they're nuns. They have none in terms of affiliation. Beating them over the head with what they ought to be doing doesn't work at all. It just makes me look judgmental and condemning. I'm not saying, I'm not saying do what some others do and accept it. Well, we're going to change the Bible to accept all the sin in the world. No, we don't do that. That's, 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 that's godless. But what we have to do is pretty much what it says right here. Don't be wise in our estimation. Don't think we have a better way than God. Follow the example of Jesus. Who did Jesus run out of the temple? The money changers. Not the lost. Who did Jesus go and eat with? He went and ate with Pharisees. But when he ate with Pharisees, you know what he did most of the time? He had to hammer them because they were being hypocrites. You never see Jesus turning a harsh word to the tax collector, to the Gentile, to the prostitute, to the lost. He said, go and sin no more. He always said, stop sinning. We should not be wiser than Jesus in our own estimation. And when people want to be overly critical towards others, it's probably not the best method. Now, that doesn't mean we are not to say this is wrong and that is wrong. It doesn't mean, and the best example I know of is all this stuff that nut job people are for some reason in a totally godless way. Notice how critical I am at that point. Uh, you know, want to kill babies. And just that, 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 at some point, yeah, I mean, I know we speak out on things. But I've often had to say and, and check myself, am I willing to love that person? Who's willing to do that? And it's a hard step. And I have to say, I have to love them. I have to love them. I don't want to love them. But I cannot be wise in my own estimation. They're lost. And lost people do what lost people do. You know what lost people do? They kill people. All throughout human history. Lost people kill people. And being sophisticated and educated and living in America in 2019 don't change lost people. That's who they are. So, it's a challenge for us. It's a hard challenge. But notice what it says in verse 17. Don't pay back evil for evil to anyone. I don't like that verse. I wish it would say, don't pay back evil for evil 
very often. Or to, to certain people, but, you know, certain people you can. Always respect what is right in the sight of all men. That goes over to chapter 13. There are certain things that all people know is right. You should respect that. But don't you just sometimes want a little bit of evil to be, you know, get paid back? So, so the word evil here is, is the fundamental word for that which is immoral. Or it's not pornia, it's just the word from which we get the idea of that which is just bad. I should say, it's just all that is bad. It's so, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Now, some things are not possible. People are out to get you, out to get you. And by the way, it doesn't mean if someone breaks into your home, you don't defend yourself and family. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean if someone takes a swing at you to cave your, you know, to hit you that you don't duck or defend. It's not talking about that. It's talking about people who deal with you solely on the basis of you being a Christian. Some people will never be at peace with you. There's nothing you can do. But try to be, but you need to be at peace with them. I, I say this. I have no one that I consider my enemy. I really don't. People may consider me their enemy. Not my problem. I can't do anything about that. I don't have an enemies list. I really don't. Uh, I serve in Bridge, uh, uh, Park Hills, the, the pastor I was there with. And he was for a little while a pastor when I was growing up in that church the last couple of years. And married Debbie and I. In many ways, he was, a good, he was a good man. But at the end of his ministry, he really struggled. And he was having some problems with people in the church. And so he took the church directory. And he would go through and he would mark out the people that were for him and against him. And he would sit there and he said, this person is for me. That, per- that person is against me. That one. And I'm like, no, you're wrong. The person who thinks for you can't stand you. The person who thinks against you just disagrees with you, but actually loves you and likes you. He would do all of that. And as I was getting ready to go to, to uh, Laredo, the pastor, he told me, you need to get you the director, and you need to keep the list like this. And said, Leslie, you're miserable. Why would I ever do that? I said, I would quit before I, did what, before I became like you. He didn't let me say that, but I didn't care. I would leave the ministry before I had a list of people. It was my enemy. Listen, I sleep well at night. I have no enemies. Verse 19, never take your own revenge, beloved. (laughs) I love this part. Believe room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. I love that. It's like, this is my prayer. God, I'm not taking revenge, but if you want to, you go ahead and do that for me. I think that's what he's saying. So many times I say, Lord, I'm not going to respond to this person, but if you want to strike them dead, I'm not going to object to that in any way, shape, or form. If you want to give them leprosy, Father, go ahead. Sometimes the best response is none. As I have gotten older, I don't respond to as many. Put it this way. Not only do I not respond to most of the correspondence I get, once I read the direction it's going in, I don't even read it. The guys will tell you that. The other day I got a letter, read the first sentence, threw it in the trash. We were at staff meeting, so I said a couple of things about it. That dumb content can't believe they did that. I think that's all I said. But that thing went in the trash because there's just simply no reason reading that thing. Because I wasn't going to respond to it. I just figured, Lord, you'll deal with it. They were upset. They got it off their chest. God bless them. I ain't going to worry about it. 
get that email sometimes. I'll read it. Nah, I ain't going to respond. And, 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 and I, I've come to the point in life, and we all need to get there. Sometimes, just let God deal with it. All right, I'm aware of it. God, you know what I'll do, God? Well, we seen a while ago, he's a good, good father. He's also a tough, tough father. He'll take care of the battle for me. I'll let him handle it. So I'm going to leave room for the wrath of God. I, I said that tongue-in-cheek. I'm not going to pray for the wrath of God. I just kind of figure if God wants to deal with it, he will. So if your enemy's hungry, I'll feed. Now, let me just say this. I will always protect the church, by the way. So if somebody does something that's going to hurt the church, all bets are off. I'll come after you with everything I have. I don't care who you are. I'll come after you with everything I have because my job as a shepherd of the church is to protect the church. I'll protect my family because I'm the head of my house and I'll protect my people I love. I'll protect my staff. You take my staff on, brother, you better bring every weapon you got because I'm coming after you with everything I have. And that's just the people I love. If I don't love them, I don't care. But that's a different thing than if I'm personally persecuted. So don't, don't confuse the two. If you ever, if you ever think that, wonder that, don't get those confused at all. If your enemy's hungry, feed them. Thirsty, give them a drink. And doing so, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Now, the, keep, uh, the heaping burning coals on his head is oftentimes misunderstood. Do not be kind to your enemy in order to make them feel guilty. The idea of burning coals is also the idea of cleansing and purifying. Be kind to your enemy so they will repent of what they are doing. So if you are cruel to me and I treat you well, it should move you to repentance, not that I want you to live with an unbearable sense of guilt. It's not that I want you to be so angry at me and I treat you kindly and you get even more angry because I won't respond. That's not the I've heard people say, well, I'm just going to heap some burning coals on their head. Nah, that's not what it means. It means love them so that they might be reconciled back to you. That's what it means. Four, verse 21 says, do not become overcome by evil. Overcome evil with good. That's how we live. Now, that is so easy for Paul to write. He had to do it eventually, which was not easy. It's hard for us. That's hard for me. It's probably hard for you. This is kind of, you know, that series of back rows. This is one of those New Testament back row passages. We just read and don't, we just gloss over it because, eh, it doesn't really, I, I got that good. But when you read it carefully, verse after verse stings, hurts, penetrates, grabs you, convicts you. And if it doesn't, it probably means there's something wrong with you. Either that or you're living a pretty flawless life. So, to go back to what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Do to other people what you would want them to do to you. This sums up all of the law of the prophets. Live a life of loving people. It is not easy to do. Questions or comments that you would like to make? We're good? All right. We all get along today? Everybody's happy with everybody? Everybody's loving everybody? All right.
I'll see you all later. No emails this week. Keep that in mind.